Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I uh, just want to take a few moments and just uh, say thank you and continue to encourage you on our uh, website for Raising for Ukraine. We're at $61,000. That's just us. So uh, pass it along, copy, paste, send it to friends. People want to make a difference, and the, one of the easiest ways is to do it is to give. And so I, I really want to highly encourage you to do that. Now, I'm panning the audience because I am looking for somebody. I am looking for Nabil and Shishma. Where are they? Are they outside? Yeah, I know they were. I think they, they might be out having coffee. So, great. This is even better. He knows I'm talking about him. So, we have a family that's new to our, new to our country, new to our city. Yeah. Where are they? There they are. Oh, great, you're coming in. Sorry to, to make you feel uncomfortable, but that's who I'm talking about right there. <laughs> yeah, welcome, welcome. Just wave at everybody. <laughs> new to our country, new to our city, new to snow, new to freezing weather. He's actually, they're getting comfortable with minus eight. They can almost put a t-shirt on and go outside. But they're also new to our church community. And so what I would like to do as pastor is say, I am asking you as Canadians who are always just a little bit cautious to drop your guard and surround them and embrace them and get out of your comfort zone and introduce yourself. They live in Corden and Grant area. That's where they live. Do they have a vehicle? No. I picked them up for church today. Why? Because I can. It's not a big deal. But there's so much that we need to do as a church community, as fellow brothers and sisters, and I cannot articulate this stronger from the bottom of my heart. Am I clear? Meet them, greet them, invite them for supper. She's a fabulous cook. Trust me, I already know. <laughs> All right? Um, but introduce their kids. They got two, two uh, um, uh, grade five, grade six kids. Uh, just welcome into our family, please. Get to hear their stories and uh, make them feel at home. We love you guys. We're thrilled that you're here. And I, I look to the rest of you to help us envelop them and make them feel welcome, okay? Am I clear? Thank you. So, we're back on a different path of uh, not our normal pick a book of the Bible and walk through it. We will be walking through the book of Mark fairly shortly once we're done with this series. Um, for those of you who took uh, advice or my request to pray for me, thank you. Um, this week was probably the only week so far that I haven't cried every day, so that's a good thing for me. Um, almost. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's good. I think I'm getting some sleep, and there's just a lot of craziness, so this is why I need prayer for today. So we got woken up early in the morning hey, we have some people, there's a young lady who is in a wheelchair, she needs rehab, will the Canadian government take them in? So Friday morning, I'm on the phone with the Canadian government. Don't you guys love government? <laughs> so needless to say, all my questions weren't answered. And, um, but thank God, uh, I got a hold of a local MP here by the name of Kevin Lamaru, and him and I had an extended conversation, and he was able to forward me a website, and he has asked me to go through it, and what they're trying to do is to try to figure out how we can get people here into Canada very quick. Well, you're saying, well, they're already, having, they're already bringing in 
yeah, they're bringing in people who have already applied with visas and are already in the country. They're granting them status. So right now what we're finding is that the problem is with those who are now in all these other countries and they may never ever go home again. So, of course, our government has said, let's open up the borders, but they just need some help. So today I have to cipher through a whole bunch of uh, electronic stuff. If this is something that excites you, email me, and I'll forward it to you as well. And if we can get more eyes on it, uh, that would be great. And then tonight uh, I have a, a, a meeting with uh, Kevin Lamaru, and uh, he, he wants our opinion on this. So if you have some time this afternoon... Email me at um, Pastor Jerry or Jerry at Soul Sanctuary, and uh, I'll send you the link, and you can read through it and give me some thoughts. So, here we are. Again, I need you to put on your thinking caps. Last couple Sundays, see, this is, this is my Bible. This is the thing I trust. Although I've moved more electronically, this is always beside me on my on my desk. It's, uh, it's the one thing that I've underlined. It has become my textbook when I was studying. Um, it's, it's important to me. I base my faith on it. And so the last couple of weeks we've been doing, uh, you know, talking about, you know, can I trust the Bible? Um, what about Bible and science? And it's not been your exegetical types of sermons. It's been proof texting. It's been doing other things, which may or may not be it's satisfactory for some, and to which I have to say, you need to do your homework. That's the important thing. Plus, I have 45 minutes to an hour to communicate, which is really not much. And so today we're looking at the questions, do all paths lead to God? And, uh, you know, many people say that all religions are different ways of expressing the same idea about God, the universe, and basically how we should treat each other. And... Uh, <laughs> This belief is known as something called pluralism. And this concept of pluralism, that everything just leads to one source, is accepted here in the West. No one feels the need to defend pluralism in our culture because it's so widely assumed just to be true. And so in our culture, what is actually scandalous is to suggest that Jesus might be the only way. And so Pluralism seems to be a useful way to actually bypass any conflict and, hey, look, let's just make sure we just all get along. There's a famous parable that conveys this idea of pluralism, and maybe you've heard it. It's called The Tale of the Blind Men and the Elephant. And it goes like this. It says that there are five blind men, and they inspect an elephant, and one feels the trunk, and he concludes that it's actually a snake. One touches the ear, and it he decides that, well, no, this is a leaf. Another finds a leg, and he thinks, no, 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 this is a tree. And then another one finds the elephant's side, and he, he says, no, 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 this, this is a wall. The final man <laughs> gets the short end of the stick, and he finds the tail. And he says, no, no, this is a rope. And the point of the whole parable is really interesting, because it, 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 the point of the parable is this, is that ultimate truth isn't found in just one religion. And rather, by our combined insight, we can arrive at this all-encompassing truth together. And if we shared our wisdom, we would then realize that all paths lead to God. Now, but does it really work that way? Let me first clarify that uh, people of different faiths can actually get along fine without agreeing on everything. 
uh, we can have Muslim and Hindu friends. And if, uh, in, our, in the West here, at least, our friendship isn't under the threat because of our differences of opinion. And if anything, when the topic of faith comes up, we might actually find it easier talking with people that are actually non-Western backgrounds um, because it's not so much of a taboo topic for them like it is for so many of us here in Western culture, right? Oh, just leave your faith at the door. Don't bring it here. Now, the problem with pluralism is that it tries to force agreement where there can't be. And in doing so, pluralism insults everybody, except for the pluralists, of course, right? Now, pluralism does this by failing to understand the unique claims of each faith. The founders of every religion and most of their followers believe that their path uh, of salvation is needed precisely because the other options don't cut it. And all the major world religions claim to, answer, to have the answers to life's big questions, the promise of eternal glory, to, of salvation, to varying degrees. They require their followers to commit to a set of values and maxims. And many people believe you know, in God in one form or another, and many will say also in that process, well, all those paths then lead to God. Or they'll say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you believe in something. How many of us have heard that? Is that even correct? Sigmund Freud called religion, he said, it's an illusion humans invent to satisfy their security needs. And Freud you know, to Freud, a benevolent, all-powerful God seemed incongruent with natural disasters and human evil, and we see that in his writings. Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. It is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. Okay. So generally speaking, there are five classic world religions. There's Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam. For the sake of our discussion today, I have left out the secular, non-religious, agnostic, atheist, because they don't necessarily qualify as a religion because they're on a path that leads to nowhere. Okay? But let us remember that there's a huge number of people in that category as well. And so first we have to have an understanding of what are some of the fundamental beliefs of these major religions. We need to ask questions concerning who God is and what salvation requires and what each teaches about the afterlife. And, and also, the big question is, who is Jesus? And my hope is that you will think about these spiritual questions and come to some conclusions for yourself about what you believe and what really makes sense in terms of who God is and what your spirit requires of you to experience him. Now, most faiths teach, love one another and love your neighbors as yourselves. Buddha and Jesus taught similar things. And I would say that there are a lot of commonalities and that they interact at a base level. But as you move past that level to what each faith believes, you're going to find really quickly that they all go off on different tangents. The three monotheistic world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have a lot in common. They all believe in one God. They believe that the world has been created by one God. They promise everlasting glory and salvation. If you submit to their religious understandings and maximums, you're there. That's fine. But when we break down how they see God, there is a difference. 
Their ways of salvation are actually very different. The way to the afterlife is very different. The understanding of who Jesus is is very different. Now add to the mix Buddhism and Hinduism. And because most people who claim that all roads lead to God don't usually look too deep into the beliefs of each religion. And so this, this conclusion is actually very superficial. And so if you take the time and you study, yes, you are going to see similarities. I don't have an issue with that. But you're also going to end up with some drastic and contradictory conclusions between them. And when you study other faiths, you, you really cannot say that all roads lead to God because you cannot have God saying that he is one in Islam and Judaism and Christianity, and then you can have a thousand, thousands of gods in Hinduism. You can't say that Jesus is the Savior and the, and the Son of God in Christianity and then have Islam and Judaism only say that he's just a prophet. And if you think about it, for Buddhists, Enlightenment became possible only because Buddha discovered this thing called the Eightfold Path. For Muslims, they have the five pillars of Islam, which are the true path of submission towards Allah. For Hindus, it's called the way of release and how people can have union with the ultimate life force. For the Jews, it's the following of the Torah. And it's the only way to truly obey him. And the list goes on and on and on. And these beliefs are not only different people. These beliefs are actually contradictory. And so when it comes to the fundamental teachings of the world faiths, either they are all wrong or only one is right. Because they can't all be leading to the same God. But according to pluralism, none of that is true. And the central claim of each faith, this, that salvation is only possible through their specific path, is really shot down in flames by pluralism. <coughs> According to pluralism, Buddha's eightfold path, Muhammad's uh, five pillars, Hindu's way of release, the Jewish law, and Jesus' death and resurrection weren't really needed because hope could have been found elsewhere. Everything leads to the same God. So I want to take you back to the parable of the blind man, men and the elephant. How many people were in that story? Thanks for paying attention. Five. Pluralists don't mention the most important fact about that parable that I just shared with you. There aren't five blind men in the story. As a matter of fact, there are six men in this story, so to speak. The sixth person is the narrator, right? The one telling the story. Only he or she has all the facts. Only the narrator perceives everything objectively. Do you see that? So pluralism sort of congratulates itself in its, you know, because it's, hey, look at we're tolerant and everything else. But actually, it makes the most arrogant claim of all. It paints itself as the only true objective point of view, the one that all other religions fail to see. But in actuality, it's wrong. The blind man and the elephant is a nice story, and, and again, you can use it in many other areas of life, but if we try to apply it to world religions, we create a bigger mess than the one we started with. And so pluralism becomes simply another ideology, and it's a bad one at that, you know, for all of us to disagree on. You know, all the world religions might be wrong. 
But one thing for sure is that they all can't be right. Now, so where does this leave us? If we can't find a unity between the world's religions, you know, do we just reject them all? Because that's not going to work either. Because faith seems to find an echo in every human soul. Think about that for a moment. Now, I'm a Christian. And this means that I believe that Jesus is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, and that nobody can come to God except through him. Now, that's going to offend the modern world, but that's okay. There are a lot of things about this modern world that offend me. And somehow I still find a way to live in peace with those around me. Being a Christian doesn't mean closing my mind to the other claims in the world in which I find myself. I can see the fingerprints of God on every worldview. I see people with eternity written across their hearts. I see people reaching out, not just for something greater than themselves, right? But for a way out of our human predicament, and even if that predicament is framed in a thousand different ways. But in Jesus, I see something unique. Instead of asking us to live better or to strive harder or to reach higher, I see a God who has come down to us, who has stepped into our situation and has done for us what we cannot do ourselves. And I see it laid out in the scriptures. If you turn to Acts chapter 17, Paul begins to explain this concept of one God to people whose idea is based on thousands of gods. He's talk, he starts talking with people and, and, and it's interesting because he doesn't use the scripture when he's communicating to them about Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 26, we pick it up and it says, From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then we read, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now here Paul is quoting people who are not followers of God. It's one of their own poets, and we presume that Paul has read and studied this poet, or that everybody knows these phrases. And now one of these poets uh, are, are Greek, and they don't believe in the one true God or Jesus Christ. And so Paul is talking to people about the one true God who made everything in order, and in order to make his point, he quotes one of their own poets. And so Paul takes this statement and he affirms that it's true, that we are his offspring, only the his has a capital H. And then he spins it to use it for his argument towards one true God. So he does not just affirm the truth, but he claims it for his purpose to show people that there is one true God. Now world religions are which are distinct from Christianity, are not devoid of all truth. Norman Geisler said this, For example, many religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Confucianism, believe in some form of the golden rule. Truth. So based on this reality, we can safely say that the world religions can and do communicate transcendent truths about proper moral behavior God has woven into the fabric of the world. So yes, there is this idea of truth. And as followers of Jesus, look at we are looking for Jesus everywhere we can find him. Because why? Because Jesus is the one who makes the claim that he is the truth. 
In other areas of Scripture, we find ourselves reading Jesus saying, I tell you the truth, right? He says that I am the truth. And, and so, because I am a Christian, and because I am of Christ, and Christ is of God, I can easily affirm truth wherever I find it, whoever speaks it. You know, it doesn't matter if it's coming out of somebody of the di different uh, religious worldview or a different country or whatever background. If it's something that is true, I can easily affirm it. And so as Christians, we should not fear truth. And if it's true, it actually comes from God. That's a more whole study of philosophy. So the fact of the matter is truth doesn't fear a challenge. All right? Truth doesn't fear a challenge. You know, is God so wide is God's truth so wide, the reality of God so profound and so deep, so that God can make statements made about false gods that deny the one true God, and he can take those statements and turn them and use us for his purposes and of argument for the existence of the one true God? And the answer is yes, he can. He simply can. And so we have to understand that the Bible contains words. Listen very carefully. Some of you don't know this. The Bible contains words of pagan poets and prophets who were writing about false gods, and the Bible contains those words, and these words in, in context of Scripture are used to actually further the case for the existence of the one true God who is living and breathing and working through his creation and his people. Now, I told you this is going to be a heady message. Just hang on with me, okay? We're going to get off the ride in a second. So there's a natural question then. Well, Aren't they just really different paths to the same place, different perspectives on the same thing, different names for the same higher power? We hear that all the time. You know, isn't it just better to believe that we are all ultimately headed in the same direction? And thus, it doesn't really matter if you follow Jesus or Islam or if you're into Zen or Hinduism or ancestor worship or Confucianism. You know, doesn't it just make more sense to believe that, you know, we're all fellow travelers on the road of life headed to the same destination. We're just taking very different routes. That sounds so Canadian. I wish it were that easy. Then we wouldn't have to worry about sharing Jesus. We wouldn't have to talk to each other about these important topics like faith and religion. We wouldn't have to think too deeply about any of this. Actually, we just have to leave it alone because it'll all just turn out okay. We can even end many of the conflicts in our world that at least are on the surface wars of religion, right? And on a more personal level, we wouldn't have to wrestle with the questions of what happens to others we know and love when they die. Wouldn't all that be great? But it's not that easy. As a matter of fact, it's actually more complicated than to say that it doesn't matter what you believe or practice. God will just work it out perfectly for everybody in the end. Okay. So maybe you're sitting there, well, well Jerry, why are there so many religions then? Well, there are some who view all the religions of the world and they conclude that this actually proves that there is no God. If there was one God, God would surely make himself known to all people really seeking him. But there are so many ways of looking at religion, it's proof that there is no God at all. I think about every culture from the earliest times had these religious uh, yearnings, religious needs, religious experiences. We can see that. We can chart that throughout history. These are common amongst all people. 
It's wired in us. It's who we are. All humankind has these same kinds of needs to reach out that there's something bigger than ourselves. And there happens to be a longing among people that there is this thing called eternity. And what does happens when I leave this spatial planet? And look at what happens to people anywhere in our globe when somebody dies. Anywhere in our globe. You actually experience something bigger than yourself. And you got to think about it. There are other people like you who have experienced an insight that they came to know from an experience from beyond themselves. God is revealing himself, not just in Western culture and in our church, but right around the world. And there's a keen sense of inspiration. And people all over, with every tribe, every nation, every race has experienced the divine in his life. Why do, well, how do you get that? I get it from reading the book of Romans. And so when we talk about this, ultimate reality that's beyond this world, we, we call this ultimate reality, we call it God. And all people have really sort of tried to reach for that. And to me, it's, it's positive proof that there is a God. There is something people are yearning for out there. Humans don't yearn for something that doesn't exist. And for the most part. We yearn for something that is possible. We yearn for something that is real, that is tangible. We want to make a difference that we might have not yet attained, but we have this hunger for it, right? How, how do we do this? And when human beings across all civilizations have yearned for God, it's, it's because there is a God who can satisfy for the yearning that they have and, and it sh- all share something in common with him. And at the same time, it's true that when two human beings experience the same thing, they talk about it in very different ways. Case in point. Do you know what this is? Yes, it's a DVD. All right. Do you know what kind of DVD this is? Can you see it? What does it say? Napoleon Dynamite. Now, how many of you have hated this movie? What's the matter with you? My family still quotes it every day. It's a fabulous movie. You know, as humans, we can experience the same thing, but we have different thoughts, right? And we analyze our experiences very differently. And if it's true of movies, how much more is it true of our experience with our God, the creator of the universe? That our three pounds of gray matter in our brains is not sufficient really to give expression to the amazing reality of who God is. And so it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all that people in different places have experienced that reality in different ways or have tried to give expression to it in a variety of forms. It doesn't surprise me at all. And that's religion is really a human response to the spiritual needs, the spiritual questions, the spiritual experiences, and the spiritual yearnings that we have because that's how we were created. And since religion is a human response to these yearnings, I can expect that human beings will describe and respond differently to these experiences, but they are reaching towards a reality beyond themselves. Now, how many of you have heard these statements? I know, like this one's great. Much of Buddhist spirituality out there is steeped in history and tradition that predates Christianity, Jerry. In fact, many world religions predate the church. Or why are Christians so ignorant and bigoted and self-important to say that they are the only ones that have the truth, that others are all wrong and destined for hell? 
Christians should just love others, accept them for who they are and what they believe and respect their views of religion and definitely not try to impose their views on them. How many of us have heard those rephrased in one way or another? I think as believers, we need to recognize that many Christians come across as naive and arrogant and can't even carry out a conversation about other religions. Christians need to recognize that people in our culture place a high value in respecting and seeing beauty in all faiths and in expressions of spirituality. And if we don't recognize this, then we are insensitive to other faiths. We come across actually as either unintelligent or as closed-minded, as uncaring of people who actually hold different worldviews than we do. And I'd venture to say that many people are not put off with the exclusive, exclusive, thank you, exclusivity of Christianity, as they are more put off with the attitude Christians have about other spiritual beliefs. You know, we believe that there is one true God and that there is no others. However, we should not act like bullies in conversations when we assert the fact that there is only one true God. And what bugs people is not the claim, it's more the attitude. And so our speech, our lack of knowledge discredits us with people, and this will even cause people to actually go and look elsewhere for spiritual fulfillment. How many of us heard, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with it? Right? So it's possible that these attitudes are the very things that repel people from becoming believers. Mahatma Gandhi, he said, and he's known for this, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Oh, or the bumper stickers that say, Jesus, save me from your followers. The best one, the one I just saw not too long ago. I got nothing against God. It's his fan club I can't stand. Think about it. See, Christians need to be missionaries into their cultures, taking into consideration how people of the culture think. And if we do, more people will listen to what the Bible teaches about Christianity and the Spirit of God will be given much more opportunity to actually work into people's lives. And is, is it possible that in our conversations with people outside of Christianity that we can clearly explain to them these exclusive claims of Jesus and the belief that salvation comes through Jesus alone? I believe it. we can I believe that as Christians, we don't have to hide anything or water down anything because all we really got to do is change maybe our approach and our attitude. It, it makes all the difference in the world. I believe that it's time that Christians listen to other people's spiritual perspectives, that we build trust with them, but then we are able then to share the words of Jesus, that he is the way, that he is the truth and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. And so people are actually curious about Jesus. Sorry. Just had a brain fart. We can actually make the statement of absolute truth about Jesus. You can actually have positive conversations with people regarding the passage in Acts 4, chapter 12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind, which we must be saved. But before we have conversations with people, we need to build relationships based on trust, based on permanence, 
if we're going to talk further about faith, we need to understand their faith as well, where they're coming from to the best of our ability in order to talk to them intelligently. Many times we have something that we want to share and we don't care where they're coming from. It's about relationship. Uh, in my dissertation, there was a, a survey that was done by college students down in the States, and this is way back in the late 90s. And they said three things. They said... Uh, um, they, they considered themselves, these students were all considering themselves all spiritual, or spiritual people, um, that they like the church, sorry, they like Christ, but they don't like the church, and thirdly, they want absolutely nothing to do with Christians. Okay, so this is, this is North American mindset. We're spiritual people. We like the teachings of Jesus, right? We have our smorgasbord and our buffet. I take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Islam and a little bit of Hinduism, and I do my, you know, my spiritual smorgasbord. But we want nothing to do with the church, and we want nothing to do with Christians. What does that say about us? It says that we're off mission. And so there are many Christians out there who would rather hand out tracts or use strong arms opinion rather than build relationships and give genuine care to people. Well, Jerry, Jesus talked more about hell and money than about anything else. Well, that's probably true. I don't have a problem with that, but he demonstrated unconditional love every moment of his life. And to be effective in our culture, we need to understand our culture and where people are coming from. Our culture here in Canada is pluralistic. Wait till next week's message. Relativism and everything else. Right? Go through your day. Go through your day this week. Make a mental note of who you walk into. I'll say this. You'll go for coffee. Who's going to serve you? Somebody who worships the goddess. Yay, Starbucks. Right? You're off to the bank for a meeting. Who's the branch manager? I would say probably a Muslim, if you're lucky. Or maybe your boss just told you that they had their tea leaves red in the village. Right? Your neighbor's Jewish, but they appreciate all types of faith. The grocery store, the person behind the till is a Buddhist. Your skip driver is Hindu. Right? Your best friend's Catholic who hasn't been to church since they were 13. Maybe Christers, Christmas, Easter, if you're lucky. And so we also live in a society that is not tolerant of Christians. You know, for example, if I were to say I'm thinking of becoming a Buddhist, people would go, oh, that's really cool. Good for you. Awesome. But when we say, look, I'm looking at becoming a Christian, the average response is, what? Are you nuts? Why? And back to the Acts, Acts 17, 16 to 34, Paul speaks to the people of Athens at the Areopagus. His audience that he's talking doesn't have the same understanding as the religious Jews or of God-fearing Greeks in the earlier passage. But Paul still talks to them in a way that they could understand, in a language that they could understand. And he recognized that these people were religious people. And he acknowledged that as good. He says, this is good for you, good. And while Paul is well-read and he had a basic understanding of the culture that he was in, uh, as well as other cultures that he was moving into, I believe that we as believers, we need to have a basic understanding of the world faith, especially when we find ourselves in our culture that is filled with so much richness and beauty. Many people see Christianity as just another modern religion, and I believe that is what we have made it to be. And we've moved from a noun to an adjective. How well do Christians really know the Bible? How well do we study? How well do we pray? 
Do we know where other religions fall into place? Let's start with the assumption of creation, just for argument's sake. I've, you know, I've built some presuppositions into this this morning, so please cut me some slack because I don't need any pushback in that area. So just work with me. God creates everything. And, and he has this wonderful relationship with Adam and Eve, and they choose to move against him, and they sin enters the world at that point in time. After this time, humans are not satisfied with the idea of one true God. And so what do they do? They begin to search for other gods. There are many interesting stories in Scripture, like the Tower of Babel, which may have connotations or viewpoints, but the idea is at some point people are spread throughout the globe. History starts with this belief in one God, and then throughout our times, other faiths are now developed and spread throughout the globe. This is very this is an elementary explanation to the origins of the world faith, but it's a simplistic way of telling a story. Christians need to have some understanding of world faiths, and then one needs to be able to explain why not all paths lead to God. Which raises the question, why would God do something like this? Why would he go over to one side of the world and whisper, hey, hey, this is what I'm like, and here's how you get to me, and then he whispers to a completely different thing to another section of the world, Right? That doesn't seem very loving of God, does it? Unless, of course, God's just a prank, cosmic prankster and he's having a good laugh at our, you know, he's playing jokes on people. Or God is a God of deception. And probably the only one of these systems can be true, right? So at this pointing, nothing is proved. But why do Christians believe that they are on the right path, the only path? And this is where a thing called apologetics comes in, the defending of the faith. This is where believers, we need to be ready to give a response as to why we believe the teachings of the Bible as God's inspired word is true. Go back a couple weeks. This is also where Christians need to focus more on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And more than Christmas, just, just throwing it out there, people. And remember that in all that, this discussion that is taking place because you have a relationship that you're trying to build with the person that you're talking to. People need to know us. People need to trust us. They need to trust our words and that our words have far more impact and meaning than we just show, especially when we show unconditional love. And I do believe, however, that the search for God in all of our cultures in the corners of the world arises from the very same root that we are more than just something physical. We, you know, we don't die and just furnish or fertilize the dandelions. There's more to it to us. There's, there's a broader reality out there that we can actually begin to make sense of our lives, that there are universal principles in how we should actually interact with one another in our world, physical and spiritual. And as Christians in our world, we must listen for those starting points. We need to identify the need and then find ways to journey together to the truth with people who are searching. But just because we start with the same question doesn't necessarily mean that all the answers are equally valid or equally true, true or lead to the same conclusion. And I believe that the big part of this driving force behind the idea that all religions lead to God is our Canadian sense of fairness. If there's a God and he's loving, then surely he must save everyone, shouldn't he? Right? Let's look at Jesus' words. To that very question. We find it in Luke chapter 13. It says, Then Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Somebody asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. 
Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he'll answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from the east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God, and indeed there are those who are last will be first, and the first will be last. The short answer from Jesus' lips to the direct question of universal salvation for everybody is no. The door will close, and some, those whom Jesus says, I don't know you or where you come from or away from me, you evildoers. Those people are going to be left outside. And this is not an isolated occurrence in Scripture. We actually find the same thing in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the wide gate is broad and the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but the small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus makes this claim to exclusivity. He does it again in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so it seems to me that Jesus is very clear. The only way to God, heaven, life, the the, the kingdom of God is through him. He's making these claims. A number of years ago, a woman who shared her testimony in, in one of our youth groups, she shared her journey of faith. And in her story, this is what she said. And it was, it was one of those profound moments. You know, she, she mentioned this. She says, I'm really okay with the, the idea of God. And here she is. She's telling her story. And as she put it, she said that She goes, but Jesus, that's pretty hardcore. And see, really, when it comes down to our faith, it comes down not to God. It comes down to Jesus. Jesus becomes actually that hinge, that hinge point, that dividing line, that narrow door, that stumbling block that we talked about even in 1 Peter not too long ago. So what do we do with Jesus in this whole conversation about the relationship of Christianity to the rest of the world religions? Because Jesus is pretty clear in his answer to the question, uh, you know, are only a few going to be saved? He's clear. If we go back to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 23, you notice carefully Paul's approach began with the words of encouragement. He's not trying to browbeat people. He's encouraged. I see that every, in every way you are very, I should say religious. I think I put religions on there. In every way you are religious. And he found a place where he could connect with people. He looked carefully at their objects of worship, we are told. In other words, Paul sought to understand. He wanted to know what they believed, and he found some common ground. And once he found that common ground, he began to tell them about Jesus. And Paul didn't believe the same things as the Athenians, but he did believe that God was active there ahead of his arrival. That there was at least something that was being prepared to them to hear the message of Jesus and Jesus' resurrection. In other words, God doesn't wait for us to show up and we have the answers. He's already doing stuff in people's lives. We just need to begin to move in that direction. Which brings us back to the question, what do we do with Jesus? And are we as Christians nothing more than narrow bigots eagerly condemning everyone who doesn't agree with us to hell? Are we so completely intolerant 
so exclusive, so heartless as to suggest that we are the only ones who are right and everybody else is wrong? The heart of those accusations are aimed at motives and attitudes, not at truth. If our faith leads us to an attitude of superiority, to a heartless lack of compassion, to a suggestion that we are know-it-alls and holier-than-thou types, then we are completely in the wrong. We haven't even begun to grasp the heart of God for people, and we've missed the central truth of all of Christianity, which is really a four-letter word called love. It's love. Talking with Pastor Sergey, And of course, as I've mentioned, in, in Lutsk, they've turned their church into refugee centers and they're not only using it to store food and to get food out all over the place, but it becomes a, a melting pot for people coming in from all over. And not just his church, but the church in Lviv, the church in Chernitsi, and all these other areas where people are coming. And then from there, they're either getting put on buses and evacuated. But the thing is, these strangers are walking through town. And, and especially if you go into a city like Lviv, there's nothing available. All the, everything is filled. There is no room at the inn, so to speak. And so people are left destitute and wandering. What the people of the church are doing, they're going out to the streets and saying, hey, come, we got something for you. And they're bringing people in. And non-believers are walking into a church community and they're absolutely blown away by their own kindred, their own fellow Ukrainians who are taking care of them. Who could have left? If not left, Ukraine, because males can't, but at least leave and be in a secure area in the Carpathia Mountains. But no, they've stayed. They stayed in the danger zone. I phoned Sergei. I said, what's up? Oh, we got bombed, three bombs last night. But I'm blessed and busy. I go, you're crazy. But they're living. They're living love. They're... Their church was full this morning. They have something real. You know what? If we begin any conversations with anyone who doesn't believe the same things as we do, with, if we start this conversation that we have an attitude that we are right, and they are wrong. We're not being faithful witnesses. Paul didn't begin that way. But Paul began to identify in their belief system something that he could encourage, that he could build on, that he could agree with. And then out of compassion, out of love for them, he began to proclaim Jesus. And I know that this isn't a popular message. And in fact, it might even offend some of you listening today. But it's actually the message that Jesus taught. I have no desire to see anybody condemned for eternity. As a matter of fact, I share God's desire from Second Peter, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to an understanding of repentance. I would love to be a universalist. 
Sure, everything, everything leads to God, but Scripture does not lend itself that way. And I think it's imperative that as Christians we come to understand the world. The world in which we live and those who are actually seeking after God and who offer alternative truth claims. I think we need to understand these other claims that we might be able to build bridges with them and that we might be able to understand and learn from them, which is okay, we can do that. And, and what they have learned, and as we converse with people of other faiths, it's, it's above all an opportunity for us to share our own faith of how we perceive God and, and share with others how to know Jesus and how we have experienced him in our lives. After all, we're not the ones who convict people, it's the Holy Spirit. That's his job. Our job is just to share. It was Blaise Pascal who said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator made known through Jesus. And so the Christian belief is that God desired to communicate with us as clearly as possible his truth. God embodied that by becoming flesh and walking amongst us as a human being, speaking the language of humanity in the form of Jesus, that we might understand what, who God is, what God is like, understand his love, his grace, our need for mercy, and understand that there is hope even in the face of death. And Christians believe that Jesus is the greatest revelation of God, and yet even then Jesus came only to a tiny piece of land that was occupied by the Roman Empire so that the world did not know, uh, yet know or understand what God had done in Jesus. And despite what relatives teach about and assert as Christians, we believe that absolute truth does exist. And absolute truth claims are by nature highly exclusive. I learned very quickly in, in high school, grade 10, geometry, those geometry theorems are, oh gosh, I suffered. They're absolute and exclusive. And believe me, there's no mathematical leakage or wiggle room when you come to geometry theories. There are not multiple paths to securing the answer on a test paper. And though I tried, I failed miserably and literally. They are absolutely true, absolutely exclusive, and that's all by design. And what is true in the field of math, I actually believe is true in the field of theology. Ardent, even emotional belief does not change absolute truth. You can passionately argue all day long that two right angles are not congruent. However, your zeal and convincing appeal does not and will not change the absolute truth that any two right angles are always congruent. And again, what applies to math applies to all disciplines, including theology. Truth, be what it may, is always true. Acts 17, Paul, sensitive to the culture and the spirituality of others, expressions around him. He doesn't slam people. He doesn't slam their view. He doesn't say they're wrong. He used what was true in other faiths to weave his message so his hearers were able to show how everything pointed to Jesus. And Paul even talked about judgment at that time. That's another favorite topic that Pastor Jordan will be addressing. He commends them for being religious. That God is at work in their lives, causing them to seek higher 
being or beings. And he uses this thing called the unknown God as a springboard for telling them about the God they should know. So, is it possible that God is at work in people of other faiths to draw them to the one true God when the message of Jesus is made clear to them? You know, we can look for God, uh, we need to look for where God is at work and use commonalities with other faiths, maybe just as starting points for discussion, but ultimately everything leads to a talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what sets Jesus apart from all other religious leaders. The resurrection is so important for all believers to know, and we need to know where it's found in the scriptures. And what I had to realize is that there's also a need for us in our society for apologetics to defend the faith. And it's useful, especially when we have relationships built on trust with other people. And I believe we need to know people in order to be ready to give an answer when they're asked. Christians need to know why we believe what we believe. And when we take time to learn about others around us, then people will take time to listen to us about what we have to say about Christ. So if you want respect, you have to give respect. And I hope that this type of conversation will go on in, with you, in your lives with believers and non-believers alike. I, I hope that we will consider how to believe that Jesus is the only way and yet show the utmost respect for those who practice other faiths, changing the perception that we, we think that everything about all other religions is wrong and that we arrogantly slam other faiths. I don't think that that is the Christian thing to do. But Christianity is the largest Eastern religion named after a Jewish carpenter who grew up in Galilee, claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus began his ministry in 30 AD. He taught, he healed for three and a half years before being nailed to the cross by a Roman centurion. The centurion had seen hundreds of people die. And after watching how Jesus faced death, this is what happened. He looked up and he said, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. For three days, Jesus' followers mourned his death because they they saw it with their own eyes. And on the third day, according to the eyewitnesses and both followers and non-followers, which we looked at, Jesus rose from the grave which was an action that so motivated his followers that they went out and told the entire world about it, risking their lives in foreign lands to tell people about the truth of Jesus. We see that today overseas with our ministry partners. That spirit is still alive. And to profess to a religion can neither make me really happy nor bring me closer to God, but to doing the word of God, to practicing it daily in my situations, that is what is genuine and true worship, which also gives real and true satisfaction. That is following in the footsteps of Jesus and which will lead us back to God. I see the, I see the Messiah. I see the hope of the world. And maybe I'm just seeing things. Maybe you think I'm nuts, that's fine. Or maybe Jesus is the true God, the one that we've all been searching for. Let's pray.
Father, again, we just come to you thankful for your son, Jesus, and thank you for what you did on the cross for us. God, my prayer is that you'd give us a hunger and a passion to make, to make you known to the lost world around us. Out of our ordinary, everyday lives, you have gathered us here to this time of worship, to bless you, to, to listen to your word, to immerse ourselves in your grace and your love, to be with each other. So God, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to your presence with us. God, take the chaos of the world that has found its way into our hearts. Speak your word and give order and form and new creation. God, may we experience your peace. Take the failures and defeats. Take the guilt and the shame that binds our spirits. Speak your word, God. Set us free. Take our longings for your goodness to shape our lives. This community, this hurting world. God, speak your word and infuse us with your courage and your hope and your love. And we ask in Jesus' name who sends us out to speak love and mercy and grace to those who are waiting, who are hoping for a sign that they're just not alone that you are a God of love, that you are a Savior, that you know their name, that you draw us close to yourself. Father, we pray for Ukraine. We pray for Russia. We pray for Miramar. We pray for Yemen. We pray for Mali. We pray for our world. Come quickly, Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with me. I want to remind Canadians to get out of your comfort zone and meet some people new to our community. Maybe you're new to the community. You go, hey, I got no friends. Hey, I know too. Introduce yourself. See, because I've highlighted them. So wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a bunch of people just standing in line saying, hey, can we exchange digits and one day we'll give you a call and maybe we can do tea? Wouldn't that be wonderful? It's your pastor asking you to, to respond. Next week, mask mandates are done. According to government standard, this will be a mask-friendly place. In other words, people are going to show up here and they're going to be wearing masks. Awesome. I want you to be comfortable. I want you to show up. I want you to participate. It's a mass-friendly place. Again, I said it. It's the third week in a row. We leave the politics outside. There are some people who are immune compromised. There are others who just feel more comfortable. Because why? We've been doing it for two years now. There are others whose jobs require that they stay healthy as possible. We respect that. I, I trust that you will too. Thank you for coming. I thank you for taking your time out of your day. I thank you for getting up early and actually being here. If your friends aren't here this morning, phone them up and make them feel guilty. Tell them the pastor told you. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing, and those receiving a blessing did likewise. So, sanctuary, as you go, may you go filled with the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. May the loving power of God, which raised Jesus to new life, may it give strengthen you and give you hope. May he enrich you with his love and fill you with joy in the faith. 
May the Holy Spirit enable you to live and speak words filled with love and joy. And may you go in his name. May you go in his love. May you go with his blessing. Now go in peace and live the church. I'll see you next time. Thank you.